When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, June 30th, 2022, the 526th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening on the day the podcast is released. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber on Substack. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can become a paid subscriber for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. That breaks down to less than a quarter per episode, and you will get all of the writing that I post on Substack at the time of its release as well. So please consider supporting the show and supporting me, and I would really appreciate that. Let's get started at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court released two more decisions today, kind of major ones. The first, they ruled that Biden can end Trump's remain in Mexico policy. This is from the New York Post. 
In a major win for the Biden White House, the Supreme Court ruled Thursday that the administration properly ended the Trump era Remain in Mexico policy, which has forced many asylum seekers to wait south of the U.S. border for their immigration hearings. So sad. The 5-4 majority led by Chief Justice John Roberts found that the Department of Homeland Security's October 29th memo terminating the policy was final. Nothing prevents an agency from undertaking new agency action while simultaneously appealing an adverse judgment against its original action. That is particularly so under the circumstances of this case. Roberts wrote in the court's opinion, which was joined by fellow conservative Brett Kavanaugh and liberals Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. The administration had repeatedly attempted to end the policy, formerly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, claiming that it was a poor tool for deterring migration, exposed migrants to unacceptable risk, and detracted from the executive branch's right to manage the borders as it saw fit. So the illegitimate administration thinks it's not very nice to keep migrants south of the border, we have to let them into the United States and then just release them wherever they end up. Or the Biden administration will just bus them or fly them around the country so that they can fit right into their new communities, wherever those are, wherever labor and votes are needed. President Biden first paused the order immediately after taking office and the Department of Homeland Security issued an initial memo wrapping up the policy in June 2021. The White House requested the Supreme Court hear the case after a lower court judge ordered the policy to continue in response to a lawsuit from Texas and Missouri, saying the administration had acted with, quote, no input from Congress, no ordinary rulemaking procedures and no judicial review, end quote. About 70,000 people were enrolled in the program after President Donald Trump launched it in 2019 as part of his efforts to deter illegal migration. The program resumed in December, but barely 3,000 migrants had enrolled by the end of March, during a period when authorities stopped migrants about 700,000 times at the U.S.-Mexico border. In their dissenting opinion, conservative justices Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch pointed to the record number of migrant encounters along the southern border, saying, quote, DHS does not have the capacity to detain all inadmissible aliens encountered at the border. But rather than avail itself of Congress's clear statutory alternative to return inadmissible aliens to Mexico while they await proceedings in this country, DHS has concluded that it may forego that option altogether and instead simply release into this country untold numbers of aliens who are very likely to be removed if they show up for their removal hearings, Alito wrote. This practice violates the clear terms of the law, but the court looks the other way. In a separate dissent, Justice Amy Coney Barrett said she understood the majority's reasoning, but argued that the whole case should have been sent back to the lower courts first before the high court intervened. Thursday's decision was immediately criticized by Republican lawmakers and border officials who predicted lifting the policy would make the crisis at the southern border worse. The Biden border crisis is real. May saw the most illegal crossings in a month ever. Now the Biden administration is forced to house unaccompanied children all the way in North Carolina. Representative Richard Hudson from North Carolina tweeted, ending proven solutions like the wall, 
Title 42 and remain in Mexico only makes this crisis worse. Alternatively, you could understand that to mean it only makes the slave trade easier, which, of course, is the goal of the global communists and of the illegitimate administration implementing their agenda in the United States. The United States of America no longer has a southern border. Representative Yvette Harrell from New Mexico posted. If human trafficking, drug smuggling and illegal immigration were bad before, we're about to see a once in a lifetime disaster unfold under Joe Biden. Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona chimed in saying Joe Biden has created the worst border crisis in our nation's history. Terminating remain in Mexico will only make the crisis worse. Just because the court says you can doesn't mean you should. The disaster at our southern border is a crisis of Joe Biden's making. We need a president who will enforce our laws and secure the border, not one welcoming droves of illegal aliens. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas tweeted. Far right representative Lauren Boebert from Colorado blasted Roberts as a rhino or Republican in name only for his decision to side in favor of the Biden administration. Meet Rhino Roberts. Voted for Obamacare, voted for vaccine mandates, now votes to end the remain in Mexico policy, she posted. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said he was disappointed by the decision, calling the policy one of the last and best protections against the border crisis. I am disappointed in SCOTUS allowing Biden to dissolve the remain in Mexico program, one of our last and best protections against the Dems border crisis. I will continue to fight to secure our border and hold Biden accountable in my dozen other border security suits in federal court, he tweeted. And they continue to list more reactions. You can find the article if you like. Now, it's pretty clear that Removing the remain in Mexico policy can definitely make the border situation even worse than it is. It's hard to imagine how that's possible because we are being invaded by 200,000 plus illegal immigrants per month. These are people being smuggled into our country by Mexican drug cartels in coordination with non-governmental organizations funded by taxpayers and, quote unquote, the private sector. We have a full-fledged slave trade happening at the southern border. We are importing people from all around the world, over 100 different countries. I think the number is somewhere around 140, or at least that's what it was in May, I believe. They are barely vetted, and then they are transported at taxpayer expense all around the country. And with the human trafficking operation, of course, there is a drug trafficking operation, a sex trafficking operation, and a child trafficking operation. These are all working together. Drug cartels, NGOs. This isn't an accident. It's not a compassionate allowance for these poor people who are just seeking a better life. It's a slave trade, and it is an invasion of our country propped up by an illegitimate administration doing the bidding of global communists, the most powerful people and organizations and institutions, the global organizations in conjunction with corporations are in favor of the slave trade at the southern border. And so Joe Biden is making that slave trade as easy as possible for the parties involved without a single thought to the impact on 
actual American citizens who are having the resources of their communities overwhelmed by people who should not legally be in the country. For instance, public schools, if a public school classroom can have 30 kids in it, if that's the maximum a teacher's attention can properly teach or that the room can properly hold, and you've got 50 kids in that classroom because you have 20 plus illegal immigrant children who, by the way, may well have been born in the United States at this point, which would give them birthright citizenship. And now they're American citizens, even though their parents are illegal immigrants, then actual American citizens and immigrants who came to America the right way are being harmed by the invasion of millions of illegal immigrants per year. And then you can get to the fact that quite a few of the illegal immigrants are actually hardened criminals. Some of them are actual known terrorists. But none of this matters because Joe Biden is implementing an agenda from people who don't want borders to exist. Now, there is some inconsistency in the reporting on this issue because There is an indication in the actual opinion that this is being remanded to the lower court and at least one mainstream communist, Ian Milheiser, who covers the court for Vox, has picked up on this. He responded to SCOTUS blog on Twitter, who had tweeted, the Supreme Court allows the Biden administration to terminate the controversial Trump era asylum policy known as remain in Mexico. Red states argued that Biden was obliged to keep the policy. But SCOTUS says in a 5-4 ruling that the administration can end it. Now, Ian Milheiser responded to this saying, no, SCOTUS remanded the case back to Trump judge Katzmerich. He will almost certainly make up a reason to rule against Biden again, and the Fifth Circuit will almost certainly affirm him. Best case, it's probably going to be another year before Biden can end remain in Mexico. And it seems from the text of the opinion that that may well be correct. The end of the opinion reads, For the reasons explained, the government's rescission of MPP did not violate Section 1225 of the INA, and the October 29th memoranda did constitute final agency action. We therefore reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. On remand, the district court should consider in the first instance whether the October 29th memoranda comply with Section 706 of the APA. See State Farm 463 U.S. at 46 through 57. It is so ordered. So if that is indeed the case and Ian Milheiser's take on this is correct, then we're going to get a whole second wave of re out of all of the communists who think they're chalking up a big win and quite possibly are not. Now, the other decision released today is an absolute win for the Constitutional Republic and people that care about laws being made in a constitutional manner through the representatives of the people in the legislature. 
rather than through bureaucratic agencies that have no accountability to the American people. We're talking about the administrative state, the people who stay in their position through administration after administration and continue to do the job that they do, which is increasing the bureaucracy, making sure that their budgets continue to grow and implementing the global agenda that's selling out America. So for a little analysis on this situation, let's go to E&E News. This is eenews.net. Now, you probably haven't heard of them before. This is not a mainstream website, but it is a great website for this particular subject. They brag in their about section that they have these incredible notable subscribers. And it's funny because the picture on that page has two people with masks on. So you can kind of get an idea where they're going. But these are their notable subscribers within government, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Interior, Mitch McConnell's office, Dick Durbin's office, the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, and the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Also among their subscribers are energy companies like ExxonMobil, XL Energy, Southern Company, Shell, Duke Energy, and Black and Veatch. Ooh, Black and Veatch. Corporations like General Motors, Honda, Caterpillar, Boeing, Apple, Google, and General Electric. Environmental groups like the Sierra Club, the Conservation Fund, EDF, Environmental Law Institute, and the NRDC. Universities like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, University of Michigan, and Yale. Law firms like Latham and Watkins and Aiken Gump and think tanks like Brookings and Heritage and the Council on Foreign Relations. So that sounds like a whole lot of catering to globalists. And it's always good to understand the associations that a given source might have so that you can have some insight into their political leanings and biases. Now, this first article I want to share from eenews.net is from June 13th, 17 days ago. The headline is Supreme Court Climate Case Might End Regulation. The Supreme Court is expected to issue a decision in the coming days or weeks that could curtail EPA's ability to drive down carbon emissions at power plants, but it could go much further than that. Legal experts are waiting to see if the ruling in West Virginia versus EPA begins to chip away at the ability of federal agencies, all of them, not just the EPA, to write and enforce regulations. It would foreshadow a power shift with profound consequences, not just for climate policy, but virtually everything the executive branch does from directing air traffic to protecting investors. The scope of the decision might not be immediately obvious, said Samhav Sankar, Earth Justice's senior vice president for programs. Everybody is going to be reading the tea leaves when it comes out, he said. At issue is a petition by coal companies and Republican state attorneys general to bar EPA from writing a rule to require more energy be derived from low carbon sources like wind, solar and nuclear and less from coal. They're targeting the Obama era clean power plan, a climate rule that was never put into effect and which has been disavowed by EPA administrator Michael Regan. That made the high court's decision last year to take up the case unusual. It might be explained, some legal experts surmise, 
as an attempt by the court's expanded conservative majority to say something new about regulation. Maybe the decision will make system-wide climate rules on power plants off limits for good, an echo of what has already happened with the clean power plan. But others say there could be a deeper impact, indeed an orbit-altering transformation to regulations. The most conservative members of the high court might use West Virginia versus EPA as an opportunity to signal, perhaps in a concurring opinion that goes further than the majority opinion, that federal agencies can no longer expect deference from the court when they write rules that expand on the instructions given to them by Congress. And that is massive. The broader picture of what may be happening is that the court is firing a shot across the bow of the regulatory state to say, Stop thinking about new problems or improved solutions to old ones. Just think of your job narrowly and imagine yourself back at a time when Congress wrote the enabling statute, even if that was 1970, said Sankar, who clerked for Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who retired in 2006. There are two legal doctrines that get at this broad theme, because Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution gives, quote unquote, all legislative powers to Congress. It must guide regulation while the executive branch's primary role is to implement and enforce it. Yes, that is how the Constitution is written. The first is the non-delegation doctrine, which holds that Congress cannot ask federal agencies to write regulations that have the force of law. That's Congress's job alone, it asserts. The non-delegation doctrine has a long history. In the 1930s, the Supreme Court cited it when ruling against President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal policies until he threatened to use his Democratic supermajority to expand the court and dilute the power of its conservative justices. Isn't that incredible? FDR was worried he would not get his way, so he threatened the court with expansion, kind of like what they're doing now. But the argument is still there. It's been floating for decades, said Kimberly Well, a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and an expert on the non-delegation doctrine. There is some disagreement about whether the interveners in West Virginia versus EPA are asking the court to consider the non-delegation doctrine or whether they're suggesting it take up a related but murkier question. That would be the major questions doctrine. It holds that federal agencies aren't entitled to deference when they craft rules that are economically or politically significant for which Congress has not, in a court's opinion, provided explicit enough guidance. In the West Virginia case, petitioners are asking the Supreme Court to reverse a January 2021 decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which threw out a Trump era rewrite of the power plant rule because it was based on an interpretation of EPA's Clean Air Act authority that the court found was narrower than the statute. The West Virginia petitioners argued in their petition last year that the D.C. Circuit, quote, purported to find grounds for EPA to dictate huge shifts in most sectors of the economy, even though nothing in the statute approaches the clear language Congress must use to assign such vast policymaking authority, assuming, of course, it can delegate enormous powers like these in the first place. Well, the University of Baltimore law professor said it was an invitation for the court to rule on the non-delegation doctrine, something its most conservative members, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, might be inclined to do.
It's an intellectually honest argument, said well, if not a pragmatic one. The Constitution does give Congress alone the authority to make laws and regulations do carry the force of law, she noted. The major questions doctrine, meanwhile, lacks the decades-long pedigree of the non-delegation doctrine. It isn't an established part of administrative law, Wells said, and it amounts to a judicial branch power grab, she said, as courts pick and choose which regulations are allowable and which represent an executive branch overreach. There really isn't a workable articulated standard for major questions, Wells said. It's we know it when we see it. And my concern is that it's going to be political. It's going to be ideological. And it's funny that these writers will separate that, that they'll say the court is being political when they make these decisions. But the truth is the politics are already baked in when agencies and the employees of that agency stick around from administration to administration for years or decades, and they continue the same policies and they continue to enhance the regulatory regime and they continue to amass more power for their agency over time to implement decades long agendas at times, particularly when it comes to stuff like climate change. This is why laws and regulations should only be designed by Congress, the people's representatives. Now, leaving aside the fact that most of the Congress is sitting illegitimately. The point of having the Congress is that those representatives are representing the people of their states. And if they aren't doing what the people of those states want them to do, the people of those states have the power to remove them from office. The government's three branches are supposed to check one another's power. That's why the system of checks and balances is there. The communists don't like that because the communists care about getting their way. They don't care about how the Constitution was written, and they don't want any restraints on their power. But the people are meant to be the check on all of it. And what we now have is a system where the branches of government don't hold one another accountable, generally speaking, and the people don't have the ability to hold them accountable either, to a large extent, because of election fraud. So we have illegitimate and unaccountable representatives in Congress delegating their authority to executive branch agencies who then create laws and regulations on their own in contravention of what the Constitution sets out as the proper course of things. Back to the article. A doctrine like the major questions doctrine or non-delegation doctrine would, in the usual course of things, evolve slowly in the lower courts, said Sankar, and all along the Supreme Court would be watching. Over years, and as these ideas percolate through the lower courts and get applied within the framework of narrow decisions on real cases, people, including judges themselves, figure out how they will work and what they will mean, he said. But that hasn't happened in the case of either of these doctrines. The major questions doctrine has figured in a few cases where courts found that agencies colored far outside of statutory lines in writing rules. And the non-delegation doctrine hasn't been a live issue since the Great Depression. If the high court eventually embraces the sorts of positions on agency regulatory authority that a conservative minority of justices appear prepared to accept now, the result would be legal chaos, Sankar said. 
because every agency is going to be scratching its head, figuring out what it can and can't do. Well, here's the answer. They can't do anything. That's the goal. And that's where we're going to get it to. And then hopefully all of these ridiculous agencies will be disbanded. The federal government outlined in the Constitution is not the one we see before us today. These agencies should not exist. I'm also confused about what they mean when they say a conservative minority of justices. There is a conservative majority of justices in the Supreme Court. The court's majority has issued two opinions in the last year that invoked the major questions doctrine. Last year, it struck down the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's moratorium on evictions during the pandemic on the grounds that the agency lacked authority to reorder the landlord-tenant relationship. Perfect. And in January, the court invalidated the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's mandate that big employers must require vaccines or testing for COVID-19. The justices ruled that the agency's statutory authority to set standards that are, quote, reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment, end quote, didn't apply because COVID-19 exposure could occur outside the workplace. And that, of course, is a proper decision as well. OSHA has no business in trying to mandate vaccines for the employees of certain companies, particularly when the harm that they're pretending the vaccines might avoid is a harm that can be experienced just as easily outside of the workplace. Neither decision took on the most hardcore questions of the non-delegation doctrine. In both cases, the court expressed concern that the agency had gotten out of its lane in regulating beyond the public health and workplace safety arenas. The OSHA decision left open the possibility that the agency might write a narrow rule that applied to a few high-risk industries where coronavirus infection was an occupational hazard. And it appears that at least some of the court's conservative justices see key distinctions between those cases and the authority EPA flexed in writing the now defunct power plant rule. During oral arguments for the West Virginia case, Justice Amy Coney Barrett suggested that regulating greenhouse gases was, quote, in the agency's wheelhouse, end quote, and less of a mismatch with its authority than the CDC's rule. Ricky Revez, director of the Institute for Policy Integrity at New York University Law School, said he expected the court to grapple with the major questions doctrine in the West Virginia case, though not the non-delegation doctrine. Such a decision might confine EPA to regulating carbon inside the fence line at a power plant. It would be unlikely to reopen questions settled in previous cases, including EPA's authority to regulate climate emissions at all. But Revez said the case could strike an incremental blow to agencies' ability to regulate, especially when added to a pile of Supreme Court decisions like the OSHA and CDC cases. The major questions doctrine has existed only for a couple of decades. And in that time, it has appeared in Supreme Court opinions maybe twice a decade, he said. Now, the pace at which the high court is invoking it is on steroids, he said. Every decision that strikes down a rule by referencing the major questions doctrine is worrisome from the perspective of the ability of agencies to do what they've been doing for 80 years since the New Deal, and which the court now seems to want to constrain in significant ways, Revez said. Excellent. Federal agencies proliferated in the 1930s to administer Roosevelt's New Deal. 
Many, like the Social Security Administration and the Rural Electrification Administration, survive to this day. Others were added later, like EPA, which was created in 1970 under President Richard Nixon. University of Michigan Law School professors Julian Davis Mortensen and Nicholas Bagley authored an influential law review article in 2020 that argued Congress has been delegating its regulatory authority to administrative entities since the 18th century. Delegation was a common practice in the colonial period, they wrote, and it would have been a notable departure if the framers of the U.S. Constitution intended to prevent Congress from delegating its authority to write regulations that carried the force of law. Well said that while non-delegation doctrine is intellectually honest, it would be dangerous in this day and age to suddenly adopt a system that required members of Congress to spell out in statute every detail of every regulation. Actually, no, that would be great. We can get rid of so many regulations this way. The whole idea behind agency regulation is expertise, she said. I kind of like the idea of experts in nuclear technology managing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and not, you know, members of Congress with no expertise or even federal judges with no expertise. And this law professor, of course, would apply the same logic to the CDC, even though the CDC told us that masks worked and vaccines prevent transmission and that landlords don't have the right to evict tenants who refuse to pay rent or can't pay rent. By the way, that's a sad situation, and I'm sorry that that situation exists in the world. I'm sorry that it was created by communist governors in states all around the country, but that shouldn't have to make it so that landlords go broke while still providing the homes that they were previously providing for money. The idea that the CDC has the power to do that is insane. And the fact that the CDC claims it is filled with experts makes absolutely no difference. If federal agencies were one day stripped of their ability to design rules or even to fill up the details of a regulation, that would mean Congress has to write regulations into enabling statutes when they are enacted. And that would mean the legislative branch, which in recent years has struggled to pass even essential laws to fund the government and service its debt, would be tasked with negotiating and passing detailed laws that ran hundreds or thousands of pages long while anticipating problems that might not yet have occurred. It's so sad watching them lose their illegitimate authority. Even in the good old days when Congress could legislate, it did so only about once every five to 10 years in a given area, said David Doniger, Senior Strategic Director for Climate and Clean Energy at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Doniger has a rule of thumb. The interval between Clean Air Act amendments double each time the law is amended. Under that timeline, the latest update should have occurred in 2016. It still hasn't come. And problems pile up much faster than that, Doniger said. Take climate change. The Clean Air Act was written to allow EPA to regulate new pollutants for new problems, as long as they meet a statutory threshold of endangering public health and welfare. In 2009, EPA made such a finding for six greenhouse gases. It still underpins regulations for motor vehicles and other sources of climate pollution, including the power plant rule at stake in West Virginia versus EPA. Oh, no, they're going to actually have to convince the citizens of the country that certain things are a problem instead of just declaring them problems and saying that 97 percent of scientists agree. 
We're talking about the very same people who told us that lockdowns work and masks work and double masks work and vaccines will prevent transmission and herd immunity doesn't exist without vaccines and that vaccines, while they don't prevent transmission, do prevent serious illness or death, but they don't prevent that either. But we're all told we must pretend otherwise because 97% of scientists agree. Of course, 97% of scientists don't agree about that. And the CDC has actually backtracked on all those statements. But thank goodness they had the power to implement their agenda while they were pretending that all those things were going to save your grandmother. If the agency had to wait for Congress to act on climate change, such as might occur under the major questions doctrine, it would almost certainly still be waiting. In 2009, the House passed a major climate law for the first time, but it never received a vote in the Senate. It's like they're advertising this to us. <laughs> if they had to wait for Congress to act on climate change, there would have been no action on climate change. Think about how much better the world would be right now if they had not gotten their way on climate change at all. Hashing out the nitty gritty of rulemakings in Congress would likely exacerbate the legislative gridlock that exists today, not lessen it, said Zan Fishman, director of energy policy and carbon management at the Bipartisan Policy Center. The more details you have to come to an agreement on, the harder it is to come to agreement, he said. And sometimes it's easier to forge a bipartisan agreement and leave some of the details to the administration to figure out. That's always kind of a gamble as to what the next administration is going to be or who's actually making those regulations. But, you know, in a bipartisan deal in Congress, you kind of just live with that. Section 111D of the Clean Air Act, the section of law that the West Virginia case is concerned with, runs approximately 300 words. But the final clean power plan was 304 pages long, while the Trump era replacement was 68 pages long. Both are stocked with potentially controversial details that might have stymied agreement among lawmakers. And the final section has a headline, Congress would have to change. Beyond the political problems of enacting laws that double as regulations, there are also a host of practical complications. A legislature is not necessarily an ideal place to design complicated and technocratic policy, said Michael Thorning, associate director of governance at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Oh, man, we're going to have a hard time passing technocratic policy, complicated technocratic policy. What could be worse? Oh, the devastation this will cause. Members of Congress have never had the staffing levels that agencies have, and legislative offices have gotten even smaller since the 1990s, with Congress periodically slashing its own budget to demonstrate fiscal responsibility. Oh, that's too bad. I guess now to demonstrate fiscal responsibility, they will have to slash the budgets of all these agencies or perhaps disband them together. I would be all for increasing the staffing in Congress to do away with all those agencies. That is a good trade. Better yet, we could return all of the authority on all of these issues back to the state where this authority belongs and the individual states can figure out their own approaches to these problems and see what actually works and see what citizens actually want and actually care about. If you cannot convince people that you are right you don't get to exercise the power that the people have vested in you.
period. After the so-called Republican Revolution of 1994, Congress shuttered its Office of Technology Assessment, a body of 150 science and technology experts that provided the House with nonpartisan analysis. Meanwhile, lawmakers deployed a larger share of their dwindling personnel to district offices and to communications roles, further diminishing their policy teams. Congressional staffers tend to be more junior and more transitory compared to federal agencies, where experts and analysts might spend the bulk of their careers focused on a relatively narrow set of policy issues. And that extreme specialization is not a good thing. We have a bunch of people obsessed with their tiny little focus of interest, and they come up with a series of solutions for problems that only they can understand. And then they want those solutions to be implemented, whether or not those solutions have ever been tried in the world. That is exactly how we got lockdowns. Lockdowns had never been tried anywhere. We were shown video of them happening in China. We were told China is handling the covid crisis the best and that we must follow China. There were studies out of universities in Europe, Imperial College, London, Neil Ferguson, He's the one that said 2.4 million people in America were going to die from the coronavirus. I don't want these people making any decisions without the direct input of the people through the people's representatives. In a future where Congress, not agencies, would be responsible for rulemaking, lawmakers might outsource that work to agencies or lobbyists, said Fishman. Those are practical solutions to the writing and expertise part of it, he said, but they aren't solutions to the political problem of members of Congress then reading and agreeing on much deeper levels of detail for bills. And again, that actually doesn't matter. The point of our government and the point of our Constitution is not to make it as easy as possible for the globalists and the technocrats to get their way and implement their agenda. The Constitution was written so that America can be a government of, by, and for the people. That is why our system is the best, if it only were running properly instead of the way it's running now. Sourcing legislation from a particular lobbying group or a presidential administration might inject even more controversy into the legislative process, he said. Again, who cares? By controversy, what they mean is that there will be blowback and pushback when these agencies try to do things that the people don't agree with and that the people don't want. If the people were considering issues and the media were doing its job and Congress was doing its job, we could be making the decisions. The government could function properly, but they'd actually have to do the hard work of convincing people that they're right. And then they would have to face the accountability for doing things that were not in the people's interest. And again, this is why free and fair elections matter quite a bit. Robert Myers, a partner at Crowell and Mooring LLC and former acting EPA assistant administrator under President George W. Bush, said a Supreme Court decision invoking the non-delegation or major questions doctrines wouldn't instantaneously change the way federal regulatory apparatus works. But, he said, it might spur Congress to legislate more specifically in the future. And while that would be difficult and take time, it might not be impossible. Congress would have to change, said Myers, 
who as a staffer for the House Energy and Commerce Committee worked on the 1990 Amendment to the Clean Air Act. Congress has institutional imperative to be relevant, he said. And if the courts are overturning their laws because they're too vague, over time, I would expect Congress would adapt too institutionally. I think they wouldn't assign themselves any more irrelevancy than they had to. And the Congress should not be irrelevant. The Congress should be doing all of this work as representatives for the people. And that might mean that these congressional representatives couldn't spend all their time fundraising and instead might actually have to do the work of legislation. So I know that was long, but the background is important to understand the potential implications of what this decision should mean. And so we'll follow up from the same source, eenews.net. This is from today. Supreme Court curbs EPA climate authority. The Supreme Court ruled today that EPA is prohibited from broadly regulating greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. The 6-3 ruling in West Virginia versus EPA, the most significant climate case in a decade, delivers a blow to President Joe Biden's efforts to tackle planet warming emissions and make electricity generation carbon free by 2035. A coalition of Republican-led states and coal companies, led by West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey, had petitioned the justices to reverse a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit that struck down the narrowly tailored Trump-era affordable clean energy rule, which gutted the Obama administration's more expansive clean power plan. Conservative challengers argued the EPA had overstepped its authority in issuing the carbon rule. They said Congress had not given the agency the ability to write sweeping regulations to curb emissions from existing power plants. The Supreme Court's decision last fall to take up the case shocked legal observers because the dispute is focused on a regulation that does not currently exist. After the D.C. Circuit ruling, Biden's EPA said it would not go back to the clean power plan whose goals were met more than a decade in advance, even though the 2015 rule never actually took effect. EPA expects to issue its proposed power plant rule in March 2023 and will likely finalize the regulation in 2024, although they may never be able to implement it. The justices heard two hours of oral arguments in West Virginia versus the EPA, the same day, a U.N. scientific report warned that the damaging effects of a warming planet will be worse than previously predicted and that governments aren't doing enough. <laughs> what timing, what timing for the U.N. to release that at just the perfect moment during arguments? Some members of the court's conservative wing seemed open to putting limits on EPA's authority, but it was not clear whether they favored a more expansive ruling rejecting federal agencies' ability to craft regulations on issues of, quote, vast economic and political significance, end quote, without specific direction from Congress. And as you might imagine, the communists are setting themselves on fire on social media. AOC wrote, catastrophic. A filibuster carve out is not enough. We need to reform or do away with the whole thing. And she's talking about the Supreme Court for the sake of the planet. Elizabeth Warren tweeted, our planet is on fire and this extremist Supreme Court has destroyed the federal government's ability to fight back. This radical Supreme Court is increasingly facing a legitimacy crisis and we can't let them have the last word. So according to Senator Elizabeth Warren, who 
wants to be president, the Supreme Court is an extremist and radical Supreme Court. They're facing a legitimacy crisis because the decisions they're making go against the global communists and the uniparty communists in our government and the global agenda that they're trying to implement. They got shot down on guns. They got shot down on abortion. They got shot down on public prayer. The immigration thing is iffy right now. Let's chalk that up in the unknown column currently. And they got shut down on the ability for federal agency bureaucracies to set laws that the citizens of the country must follow. All of these strike at major aspects of the global communist agenda. So this week has been a week of pure winning when it comes to the Supreme Court. This EPA decision might even threaten their agenda more than the Dobbs decision overturning Roe and Casey. And hopefully we will see responsible America first attorneys general around the country doing more and more to challenge the regulations these agencies are setting, because now there is a precedent for them to be overturned pretty regularly, one would think. And the faster that happens, the happier I am. Now, the Supreme Court also had some more news today. This is from Just the News this morning. Supreme Court accepts historic case that could reshape the powers of legislatures to set election rules. The Supreme Court agreed Thursday to hear a major election case regarding North Carolina GOP lawmakers having the authority to draw a partisan election map without state judges interfering. The decision could impact future congressional and presidential elections. The high court will take up the case when its next term begins in October. The case of Moore versus Harper asks the court to uphold the concept known as independent state legislature theory that state legislators have the sole and independent authority to set rules for federal elections in their states without interference or oversight by the governor or the state judges. North Carolina GOP House Speaker Timothy Moore asked the high court to consider the case on appeal of his own state Supreme Court's decision earlier this year to strike down the theory relating to a gerrymandering case. Critics of the theory argue it would reduce judicial oversight of election rules. The theory would give state legislatures wide authority to gerrymander electoral maps and pass voter suppression laws, according to the liberal-leaning Brennan Center for Justice think tank. And so we can look forward to finding out the outcome of that case at some point within the next year. And this, too, has the communists very upset. Communist Ian Milheiser, writing for Vox. I'm not going to read this because it's long and not necessary, but have a look if you like. The headline, though, a new Supreme Court case is the biggest threat to U.S. democracy since January 6th. And he is talking about this case, Moore versus Harper. This is the biggest threat to democracy since January 6th. This is pure, unbridled communist panic, and it is wonderful. Now, I mentioned yesterday that there were some problems in the Colorado elections, the primaries that were held on Tuesday night, and in particular, the GOP primary race for secretary of state 
featuring Tina Peters, who was the woman who did her job as county clerk and had a forensic image made of the Dominion systems before and after the trusted build, showing that the trusted build actually erases election records. It is part of the cover up. This is Emerald Robinson in her Substack. Something stinks in Colorado. According to the state of Colorado and the Associated Press and the New York Times, the official results for the GOP primary race for secretary of state have Pam Anderson winning with 43% of the total vote and Tina Peters second with 28%. But the real story was that Australian businessman Mike O'Donnell had picked up 28% himself and might actually beat Tina Peters too. I wanted to know more about Mike O'Donnell because I had never heard of Mike O'Donnell. In the most high-profile race in America for the office of Secretary of State, a candidate who had become a national political figure, who had the highest name recognition, who outraised both of her opponents by three to one, who spoke at rallies with President Trump, who was the obvious frontrunner. That person didn't just lose, but she tied with a guy who had none of those things in a GOP primary. I didn't even know that Mike O'Donnell was running in the race until I saw the race results. How did an unknown candidate like Mike O'Donnell manage to garner as many votes as a national political figure like Tina Peters? This question, ladies and gentlemen, is what leads you down the rabbit hole of America's bogus election system. I went looking, in other words, for Mike O'Donnell's 170,000 supporters in Colorado. I didn't find them on Facebook. Only 193 people were following his campaign page. Mike O'Donnell's 170,000 supporters were not hiding on Twitter either. Just 560 of them were following his campaign at all. The day before the election, his last tweet managed to get four likes. That's the most interaction that his campaign Twitter account got ever. Mike O'Donnell sent out 1,306 tweets on his account, and the vast majority of them got zero likes and zero retweets and zero comments. There was no interaction on his Twitter account because nobody was voting for Mike O'Donnell. How about fundraising? According to Colorado Public Radio News, Mike O'Donnell had managed to raise $4,700 for his campaign three weeks before the primary. And yet on election day, Mike O'Donnell got nearly a third of the total vote and over 600,000 people voted in that race. More than 170,000 Colorado voters suddenly appear out of nowhere for Mike O'Donnell. So many people suddenly appear for Mike O'Donnell that he actually wins 17 counties in Colorado. Mike O'Donnell is the outright winner in Jackson County, 43%, Rio Blanco County, 37%, and she goes down the rest of the counties. Does this scenario seem remotely possible to you? Something stinks in Colorado. And I like her reasoning. These are not the pieces of direct evidence that we are conditioned to respect. This is logic and deductive reasoning. In the real world, these results are impossible. And indeed, when you look at the vote count, how it came in and you analyze that, it turns out they are impossible. Jeff O'Donnell, who is an expert in these issues was on Joe Oltman's show yesterday describing the anomalies in this race. Tina Peters was the overwhelming favorite 
And not only did she lose to the Rhino establishment candidate, she essentially tied with a man who was completely unknown. And so we will continue to keep an eye on Colorado and on election fraud in general. Switching subjects without a segue. This is from The Federalist today. Norway is tracking what everyone buys and Biden wants to follow suit in the United States. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because this is the sort of thing I talk about quite a lot and the sort of thing that people default to believing is simply a conspiracy theory. Oh, that's never going to happen, they say. A report published at the end of May by NRK, the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, notes that the official statistics bureau of Norway will soon track most grocery store purchases made in the Scandinavian country, a development that should serve as a warning to Americans about the growing trend in Western nations to expand surveillance and tracking of everyday citizens. In an article titled Statistics Norway demands to know exactly what Norwegians buy in the grocery store. Reporter Martin Gunderson wrote that Statistics Norway has, quote, ordered the grocery chains Norgesgruppen, Coop, Bunpris, and Rima 1000 to share all their receipt data with the statistical agency. Gunderson further reports that Nets, a payment service provider that processes about 80% of all in-store payments, has also been required to share detailed information on all transactions. Statistics Norway, the National Statistical Institute of Norway, and the main producer of official statistics for the country's government, has said, as part of its new mandate, the agency will collect all customer transaction dates, card services information, user location number, user location name, account numbers, and other relevant information related to each grocery transaction. According to Gunderson, a link between a payment transaction made with a debit card and a grocery receipt enables Statistics Norway to link a payment transaction and receipt for more than 70% of grocery purchases, the statistics agency writes in a cost-benefit assessment. Under the new policy, about 1.6 billion transactions will be stored each year, according to Statistics Norway, which has also said it does not plan on deleting the data in the future. Statistics Norway says the justification for gathering the massive amount of data is so government can better improve its social welfare programs and properly adjust tax policies, among other goals. The plan for the data isn't merely to examine behaviors broadly, but to look at the actions of specific groups. Now, I have no doubt that they would be better able to target their agenda with the maximum possible information. That doesn't mean they should be allowed to do it, and they certainly shouldn't be allowed to do it here in America. But again, the reason that they need this information is because they are talking about a managed economy, which is socialism, which is right on track for communism. This sort of information is not necessary for the government to possess in a market economy. It is necessary for the government to possess in a managed economy. When the purchases are linked to person household, it will be possible in the consumption statistics and diet statistics to analyze socioeconomic and regional differences in consumption and link it to variables such as income, education and place of residence. Statistics Norway wrote in its cost benefit analysis.
When asked about the new policy's intrusion on privacy, Anne Kristen Brandvang, the director of personal and social statistics at Statistics Norway, replied, there are no other ways to do it. And the overall use in Statistics Norway indicates that the benefit to society is greater than the disadvantage. Isn't that awesome? A bureaucrat decided what's better for society. And it turns out what's better for society is a more empowered, centralized government and that people's privacy rights to purchase the things they want without the government knowing don't matter at all. So for them, the cost benefit analysis is only benefit benefit. Americans might be tempted to write off this truly disturbing overreach in Norway as something that could never happen in the United States. But the truth is the Biden administration is currently considering the creation of a central bank digital currency that would give the Federal Reserve and federal government the ability to track virtually all transactions made with the new asset, not just purchases at the grocery store. In an executive order issued in March 2022, the White House directed several federal agencies to study the creation of a programmable central bank digital currency. Within 180 days of the order, which falls in mid-September, a report will be issued indicating whether a central bank digital currency should be created in the United States. Although this might sound as though the Biden administration is unsure of what it will do regarding a central bank digital currency, all signs point toward Biden moving to create a new digital dollar. And of course they are. That is the agenda. The report and the study are irrelevant. The report and the study only exist as marketing tools so that they can tell everybody how great it will be when we start a brand new currency under the central banks that they can just turn on and off at any time they want and track every single thing you do. According to the very same executive order directing federal agencies to study a digital currency and write a detailed report, which, remember, is supposed to occur within just six months of the order being issued, a full legislative proposal with input from the Federal Reserve Chairman and Treasury Department must be delivered to the president for the establishment of a new digital dollar. The digital currency imagined by the Biden administration wouldn't be an expansion or enhancement of the current physical dollar, nor would it be comparable to decentralized cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. It would be a fully digital, non-printed, programmable currency, which means its use could be tracked in detail so that whichever government or banking entity in charge of it knows exactly where every digital dollar is being spent and by whom. And you kind of have to wonder, could they program it so that it can only be spent on certain things? Would they have the ability to say, well, you can buy that thing, but not that other thing. You've had too much meat this month. You're going to have to switch to crickets. You've traveled too far this month. We're not going to be able to allow you to buy any more gas until it's next month. You think it won't happen? That's just a conspiracy theory. Well, they told you masks worked. They made everybody wear masks for a disease that almost definitely cannot kill them. I bet no one thought that would ever happen in 2019. But not only is it not a conspiracy theory, it is a guarantee for as long as we continue down the path toward the implementation of the global communist agenda. It is part of the agenda for them to be able to control these very things. Why in the world would you think that they wouldn't be trying to bring it here.
And of course, I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about child brain communists who get upset when people say things that haven't come true in the real world as reported by the television yet. None of them ever look to the future. They think it is conspiratorial to think about what the future might bring. So instead, they focus only on the past that is being constantly rewritten for them by the news. They will find out about this system after it is already implemented, and they will think, oh, it's no big deal. It's already been implemented and everything is just fine. There will be at no point any actual disagreement with what's happening because they are programmed not to disagree. For example, If fully implemented, a traceable digital currency would allow government and the Federal Reserve to have an active database of every gun and ammo purchase made in the United States using digital currency. Government agents would further have the ability to know about every subscription you have, including the various news outlets, the charities and political candidates you've given money to, the carbon footprint of your past travel activities, how healthy your diet is, and what you've got in your pantry, among many other things. In many respects, citizens using this new digital currency would effectively have no privacy from the government. And this is especially funny right at this moment where Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and others are encouraging the abolishment of the filibuster so that they can protect abortion rights and pass a voting reform. They are still trying to implement a federal takeover of elections and they want abortions everywhere all the time. But they are now reframing the abortion issue as a privacy issue. And certainly that was part of the original Roe decision, but that's not where they went with it for the past five or six days. Now they're messaging about the privacy thing before it was about my body, my choice, but that didn't kick up any riots. People didn't really buy it. People didn't really care. And so they've switched communication strategies. Do you believe that the same people who want to track all of your transactions and know everywhere you go, everyone you talk to, everything you read and see. Do you think those people care about privacy rights when it comes to abortion? No, that's not what they care about. They want the fetal tissue. This could pose numerous other problems related to liberty as well. The most obvious of which is Would the government or Federal Reserve tie punishments or rewards to purchasing behavior? Would they put limits on what could or couldn't be purchased using a digital currency? Of course, it's theoretically possible to design a digital currency that isn't programmable nor traceable. But the Biden administration has already acknowledged that its plan for a digital dollar, assuming it does formally propose one, would ensure that the new currency is designed for, quote, financial inclusion and equity and to battle, quote, climate change, and pollution, all of which would require programmability. The White House has also promised to, quote, continue to partner with all stakeholders, including industry, labor, consumer, and environmental groups, international allies and partners in developing the new currency, yet another sign that the currency would be programmable. There would be little reason to consult lobbyists, environmentalists, and other stakeholders If Biden were planning the development of a truly neutral, non-traceable digital currency, the White House has further said its digital asset policies must prioritize eliminating 
the use of digital assets by criminal organizations, another goal that could never be achieved unless the planned digital currency is traceable. The U.S. government isn't the only one considering the development of a programmable central bank digital asset. As Kevin Stockland noted for the American conservative in a report in May, nine countries have established CBDCs thus far and 15 others, including China, Russia and Sweden, currently have pilot programs in place. Altogether, 87 countries that collectively represent 90% of global GDP are in some stage in the development of CBDCs. The European Central Bank is also moving forward with the implementation of its own CBDC, the digital euro. And Deutsche Bank predicts that the central banks collectively representing one fifth of the world's population will issue CBDCs by 2025. The increased use of technology by Western governments, including the United States, to track the behavior of lawful citizens should deeply disturb Americans of every political and ideological persuasion. How long will freedom in the West remain if nearly every decision and purchase made by citizens are watched by those in power? The United States should embrace important technological innovations, of course, but not at the expense of individual liberty. Now more than ever, it is vital for Americans to send that message loud and clear to those in power at the White House and Federal Reserve. And it is interesting to watch the global communists continue to pursue their agenda as various paths continue to be cut off by the American Constitution and the safeguards it provides. What we have seen from the courts in the last week is a genuine threat to their grip on power and to their permanent grip on power, which is exactly what they have been attempting to establish. And they thought they got there. They were so ready at the end of Obama's term. Hillary was going to come on in for eight years and the 16 year plan would have been complete. We would be on the cusp of 2030 when Hillary Clinton left office and the entire agenda would be falling into place so that the 2030 agenda would be all ready to go. You will own nothing and be happy. That is what you were promised, except Donald Trump was in the White House for four years, thwarting absolutely all of this and installing three Supreme Court justices that are doing what they are supposed to do in preventing the encroachment of the administrative state and an international global order that strikes directly at the good of the American citizens. Donald Trump's legacy already is going to go down as one of the greatest presidencies in American history. He is not currently on center stage as the publicly acknowledged president of the United States of America, but he is nonetheless continuing to save this country based on what he was able to do. They never thought she was going to lose Hillary Clinton. She was supposed to be in there. Everything was supposed to go according to plan. Donald Trump delayed that. He thwarted it. He rolled back a lot of what they were trying to do. Now the Supreme Court is putting the stops on a lot of it. And Joe Biden is rushing to recover. They are talking about doing away with the filibuster so that they can take over elections and give unlimited abortions. And will that be all they do with the filibuster removed? Of course not. These people are power hungry. These people are insane. These people are communists and they will not win. And they are not winning. 
the bigger their threats, the bigger their talk, the bigger their bluster, that is an indicator of the size of their panic. Their whole thing is falling apart at this point, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!